Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's Tuesday, February 28th, the last day of February. February is always that month that is probably my least favorite, but at least it flies by. That is probably the only silver lining, diamond in the rough, to this month. It's been very cold. It's been very windy. It's been quite a wet February, and I'm glad we're going into March. At least we know Daylight savings will be coming eventually, probably my favorite holiday of the year, even though you lose an hour. While you lose an hour, you gain some light, so I'm excited for that to come in a few weeks or three weeks. I don't even know when it comes, but I know it's in March. So anyways, uh, oh, we actually have it up on the screen. It's March 12th, which is actually the day of the Oscars anyways, and for the first time, I will say I've actually watched a few of the movies that are nominated, and I must say, I guess I'm going off on a little rant here as we start, uh, the Banshees of Inner Sheeran, I highly recommend people watch it. I hope it wins everything. It probably won't because that one time travel, you know, different universe one, uh, what's it called? Everything, everywhere, all at once or whatever. A lot of people say that one's going to be good. I haven't seen it, but Banshees of Inner Sheeran, watch it. It is a very fascinating metaphor for civil war, for the Irish civil war. Basically, Colin Farrell and uh, Brendan Gleeson are two best buddies who have spent a lot of time together and one day Brendan Gleeson is basically like yo buddy I don't want to be your friend anymore and Colin Farrell who plays this Pedrick guy just kind of becomes very depressed and is always bothering Brendan Gleeson going why can't we be friends anymore and Brendan Gleeson you know just is like you're an idiot I don't want to waste my time with you and as Brendan Gleeson basically gets irritated with Colin Farrell's character he basically threatens to start cutting off a finger each time Colin Farrell asks him why they're not friends anymore. And it's a really interesting parable about broken relationships and fractured relationships. And as the two basically are becoming more and more isolated from one another, you see on the mainland of Ireland the Civil War happening. The two comment about it, but they never actually experience the Civil War on their island. And it's an interesting, I think, relationship for or not relationship but an interesting metaphor about civil war and Banshees of Inner Sharon reminds us of this it it reminds us that civil war is painful and relationships can be fractured and sometimes you don't even know why you're not friends anymore but overnight you're not and I guess as this you know national divorce topic comes up it reminds me that national divorce is not a thing but civil war is and it can be really bad for relationships. So I, I recommend people to see this Banshees of Inner Sheeran movie because I think it's kind of prevalent for our time right now. Anyways, um, I want to get into really quick just a video from Nina, of Nina Turner on a CNN panel. And I like it mainly because I think a couple days ago, Joy Behar on The View basically said it's the residents of East Palestine's fault that this happened because they voted for Donald Trump. And it's such a disgusting, out-of-touch, and immoral point of view that just shows how detached she is. She's also she's also the one that complained about the war in Ukraine because it was going to get in the way of her trip to Italy. So she's really in touch with society. Really good person. But I think um, after she said this, I, I like Nina Turner's response, which I want to play here, because it, she basically talks about how this is an issue of class, and the neoliberals like Joy Behar just don't understand it. So I'm going to play that video, and then we're going to get into the actual topics today that I want to talk about. He's not doing enough. I'm not pleased with Governor Mike DeWine, who actually drunk some of the water, giving people confidence that that water is okay, when in fact, 
that EPA didn't do the deepest dive that they can do to deal with uh, the carcinogens that are there, the air, the water. For the neoliberals who say that the residents of that area deserve what they, they are getting because they voted for President Donald J. Trump it is abhorrent. Mm. This is about poverty. This is about poor working class white people who are enduring some of the same things that poor working class black people endure, whether it's Flint, Cleveland, or Jackson, Mississippi. And so I want to lay it out. The, the cultist behavior in politics right now, it is a sin and a shame that when people are suffering to this magnitude, you got people who will fix their mouths, to quote my grandmother, to say that they are getting what they deserve. What they deserve is clean air, clean food, clean water. They deserve relief, both in the short term and also in the long term. And yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not always a huge fan of Nina Turner by any means. I don't agree with a lot of her politics, but I think she brings up an issue that we can't turn this into one of voting and power and the populism that's growing in America. Instead, it's about access and um, and class. And I think that's a really good thing. So I'm glad she's calling out the Joy Behars and all the other people that are taught, are making this a thing about voting for Trump, because it's really not. And Joy Behar is disgusting. The view is a mess. But anyways, that's a whole other topic. So as yesterday, I was really focused on international issues. Today, we're going to bring it back home to the United States, mainly I want to comment on Paul Ryan, uh, some new revelations on Fox News from Rupert Murdoch, and some comments he's given in a disposition. I also want to give some thoughts on Scott Adams' dangerous racist rant, which has got his cartoon pretty much canceled. And I also want to share my thoughts on the Roald Dahl, I guess you could say, editing or vandalizing of his works. And I will also talk about how I do think he's a problematic character, but I also think what these um, sensitivity people are doing is stupid. But first, I want to get into the Supreme Court finally doing the hearings into the student debt crisis. So look, Biden's student loan forgiveness thing has kind of been in legal limbo, I guess would be the best way to put it. And today, the Supreme Court is starting the hearings into whether it can be upheld or if they can overturn it. Basically, we've seen several states sue over this. And we have also seen several borrowers um, sue over this as well, mainly because it's either been they had private loans that didn't qualify for this or income-wise they didn't qualify this. So we're seeing basically whether this is going to be upheld. And Herman Lopez writes for the New York Times, and he writes that today or sometime tomorrow, the Supreme Court could strike down the debt forgiveness program that would help millions of student borrowers. He writes here in quotes, today the Supreme Court will hear arguments over whether President Biden can cancel student debt. The justice's eventual ruling will affect tens of millions of low and middle income Americans who could qualify for up to $20,000 in student debt forgiveness. And we have to remember basically that Biden proposed this program because the legislation didn't have enough support in Congress. And Lopez writes here in quotes, Biden cited a federal law that allows his administration to take action during a national emergency. Both he and Donald Trump used that law to pause loan repayments earlier in the pandemic when the U.S. unemployment rate reached its highest point since World War II. Now, I think the intention is good. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, unemployment was high. The pandemic had a lot of people at home. Also, I would argue that education went kind of downhill during the pandemic. Imagine if you took out a huge loan and then all of a sudden you're doing remote classes, not getting the quality of the experience that maybe you were hoping for. There's a lot of reasons why I think the intention here was good. But from my understanding, they might have actual issues upholding this because there's a lot of hesitance towards emergency powers. And we've also seen, I guess we've seen the more conservative-leaning court 
say basically, hey, we're going to push this off to Congress. You guys need to deal with this. Come back to us. And the courts really want there to be congressional approval in these instances, and they're always hesitant towards emergency powers. I think about the consumer protection issues that Brett Kavanaugh and others have kind of turned back to Congress and said, you guys deal with this. There was also the Nevada, uh, sorry, the National Eviction Moratorium, which the Supreme Court reviewed, put it back to Congress, gave them like 60 days to pass some legislation. They couldn't do it. So then the court said, sorry, we have to overturn this. And so it's going to be interesting to see if the courts act similar. And they're basically opponents to Biden's loan forgiveness. There's a few different arguments, but like the Wall Street Journal editorial board, I think, sums up well why a lot of people on the right don't agree with it. The Wall Street Journal has argued in quotes, such a sweeping and expensive program to continue would amount to letting the president steal Congress's power of the purse and act like a king, right? I mean, that's definitely one argument is that by avoiding Congress and evading Congress on this, the president is kind of acting unilaterally. Others argue that the administration has not been able to prove that COVID actually hurt those paying loans enough to merit them getting relief. So I think that's an interesting one as well. But from my understanding, the Biden administration here is arguing that the administration had to, had to, had to, they were forced to sidestep Congress because Congress is gridlocked, they can't get anything done. And look, I definitely can see that being part of the problem here. But again, I don't know how this will work because COVID, the Supreme Court has been kind of hesitant to work with these emergency powers. But then in the past, presidents have done unilateral actions, and sometimes they've been challenged, other times they haven't. So we'll have to see what happens here. But I think we do, well, the one thing that's certain, and I think has been misunderstood sometimes, is that this case is not about the merits of the student loan program, but it's about the president's powers in the absence of a mandate from Congress. So can the president actually, president, sorry, actually do this without Congress? And also they're seeing about whether the states can actually sue over this program. Do the states have the ability to sue over this program? So things could get pretty interesting. I will also say that I'm a bit torn on this because I myself, you know, took out a loan for graduate school. And so obviously, personally, selfish-wise, I would be okay with getting 10000 taken off, obviously. I don't think anyone's going to say personally they don't want that to happen. I also think our system is completely broken and predatory. And as I've talked about, though, on the podcast over the summer, I do think this is a bad idea in the long term, and it could be politically atrocious for Biden. I also do think, as I mentioned earlier, that the Supreme Court will strike this down. The first reason I'm against this, though, is because it's not actually solving any of these issues. Yes, it's helping some people that have burdensome debt, and that's always good. But it's not solving the root of the problem, and I've talked about this before, is administrative costs at universities have gone up. They're a complete scam. The administrative costs and the size of boards has grown. Professors are still underpaid. A lot of adjunct professors have like four or five jobs, four or five teaching positions. It's not really sustainable. Also, this investment in diversity, equity, inclusion Affirmative action has created just complete new departments around this feature, and it's become just bloated at the top. I was reading an article, oh, back over the summer in the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, and it just puts out a shit ton of numbers about the black hole of spending that these DEI programs or diversity, equity, inclusion programs have created in universities. And of course, I think 
providing more equitable and more diverse classes and not discriminating is important. But it sounds like creating a whole new industry around it is absurd and just creating top-down bloat in universities. And that's what a lot of these administrative costs are going towards that have made the education so much more expensive. And like I said, it's also just hard to imagine that universities are really using the money towards professors, educators, etc. right? And also there's a good article that came out over the summer. It's by Adam Harris and it's called The Cancellation of Billions in Debt Will Not Solve the Larger Problem. It notes the underlying issue here is that American education isn't viewed as a public good. And until this paradigm shift happens, people are just going to keep getting more and more debt, right? I mean, a lot of European Western countries view education, higher education as a public good. We do not. It's even though we have not for profit education, it still is for a profit. It really is. And in this article, Adam Harris writes in quotes, belatedly canceling some student debt is what a country does when it refuses to support students up front. And that's a good point. And of course, that's what happens is we don't actually want to make the systemic changes going forward. So we're just trying to like fix it after the fact. And of course, there's also the political issue here, which I guess is less important. But of course, it'll be demagogued and used. Tom Nichols has a great article from The Atlantic from a couple months ago as well. And he writes in quotes here, fewer than four in 10 Americans over 25 have a four-year college degree. Only 13% have a federal student debt. And he kind of just goes into the majority of the country will not be impacted by this. And even if the intention is good and it does need to be fixed, most Americans will not benefit from this. And it's a perfect way to demagogue the issue. You know, he talks about how a lot of other forms of debt are at, the re are at record highs right now. And people have a, have a lot of payments. And they see this as kind of an elitist focus on people that are generally better off, right? Like, I mean, technically, if you go to a four-year school or get a grad degree, you're more likely to make more. That's changing, but historically, that's been the case. So his point is that, look, like these people are generally going to do probably better. So if you're just giving them these bailouts and not other Americans and other sectors, it's a really bad look politically. And it's a perfect talking point for the right, for the Fox News propagandists, etc., and we have to remember that, I mean, everyone from Charlie Kirk to Candace Owens to Tucker, they're becoming more and more anti-higher education, anti-elitist. And the last thing we want is the government helping the elitists or the coastal elites. As it's not always the case, but that's a good way to brand it, right? And the last thing I'll say, too, why I think this is a problem is just the issue of moral hazard here. And in economics, you know, moral hazard is a situation where an actor, an economic actor, basically has an incentive to increase its exposure to risk because it does not bear the cost of that risk. And I won't get into an economics class lecture right now for you guys, but there are a few moral hazards here. And the most obvious is that the future students may opt to take out even larger loans because they assume that the government will bail them out or give them some form of forgiveness. So it creates this just spiral out of control. And this is risky. Also, this basically means that blanket loan forgiveness rewards people that have overpaid for their degrees. So moral hazard is a real thing. You see it in a lot of different sectors, especially in like companies with insurance as well. But yes, the more times you give loan forgiveness out in a broken system, more people are just going to take out bigger loans and it's just going to keep this system broken. And it might even get worse and loans might even get more expensive, right? And ultimately, I do think that this forgiveness plan will be overturned. 
denied, not upheld, whatever you want to call it. Not as much because of the need for loan reform, but because of the shaky grounds it was enacted. I think it's going to be overturned because Biden used these emergency powers to forgive these loans. And I don't know. I don't know if there's really good grounds here. We have to remember that this forgiveness scheme relies on the 2003 HEROES Act, which basically allows the Department of Education, the Education Secretary, to modify the rules that apply to student loans during war or national emergencies. And obviously COVID has been a national emergency. Unemployment was awful at first. Like I said earlier, World War II almost levels. But the problem here is that Biden has declared this emergency over. Congress has, as I mentioned earlier, also Congress has failed to pass any legislation. And the Supreme Court has, during the COVID era, relied on passing these decisions to Congress and not upholding them in the courts. And so Adam Liptick writes here in the New York Times, in quotes, the courts also ruled that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were not authorized to impose a moratorium on evictions and that the Occupational Safety and Health uh, Administration was not authorized to tell large employers to have their workers vaccinated against COVID-19 or undergo frequent testing. So we've seen how the courts have gone so far with COVID-era emergency actions, and so it's going to be interesting to see. Maybe by the time this is out, we'll have some updates on it, but I bet a lot of Americans have their fingers crossed. What I think is going to happen is, even if it's not upheld, the Biden administration is just going to keep pushing this down the road. They're going to keep putting these pauses and delays on needing to start repaying your loans again. And the thing is, is that if you go down this road for years, people are going to be used to not having to pay their loans, and that opens up a whole no new conversation. So I don't think this is over, even if the court doesn't uphold this forgiveness scheme. Moving on, I've been, I guess you could say, fairly quiet about the topic of Roald Dahl, right? English author, kind of from that 40s, 50s, 60s period. Obviously, a lot of very popular books, a lot of movies after him, right? We have Matilda, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, just to name a few. The Witches, a lot of really popular books, movies out there. But... I guess his legacy, his writings, his estate have all kind of been in the news lately. And while I haven't talked about it, I've just been kind of listening to some perspectives and just kind of following it and trying to develop my own opinion on it because these things are kind of difficult. Sometimes you have to tread lightly on them because you don't want to irritate too many people or offend too many people. And I won't talk as much about Ian Fleming, author of the James Bond books, but for those that are less aware, there have been a lot of posthumous changes, I guess you could say, to the work of Fleming and Dahl, specifically. And they've kind of triggered a lot of rage, also a lot of support, I guess you could say, depending which side of this debate you're on. Like I said, Ian Fleming, I'm not going to talk as much about because I'm kind of biased and I'm just going to keep that one out. But I should note that this rage, though, about what they're doing with Dahl's books um, actually is even coming from some on the left. It just kind of depends if you're like more of that progressive identity politics, more really liberal side or if you're kind of more of a moderate and um, I won't give a really long background but basically over a week or so ago the Telegraph revealed that Puffin which is a British publishing company released new editions of Dahl's books stories etc and the controversy is that these stories were basically rewritten to suit modern sensibilities and this was done by an organization which has a very fitting name for this called Inclusive Minds and it was, in hi- it was hired in 2020 to basically work as a consultant to update these novels. Now, I do not like these sensitivity 
organizations like Inclusive Minds. I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole about ranting about them, but I'm not a fan. But anyways, I should also I should also note that during this time, a lot was happening around Dahl's estate. We just need to put it out there right now that he definitely has a legacy of anti-Semitism. Dahl is not a very great guy on that regard. He's definitely not perfect. He's had a lot of bad things he said over the years. And his family did have to apologize for his anti-Semitism, which is real and troubling. And again, I'm one of the ones who says we can kind of enjoy his works while also acknowledging the flaws of him and his time. Some people would not agree with that. But anyways, also in 2021, his estate was sold to Netflix, which is why I think lately you have seen a lot of his new movies coming out on there. I think there's a new Matilda, if I remember correctly. And the thing is, is that I think because Netflix bought his estate and they want to turn a lot of his works into either shows or movies, that's probably why we have this Inclusive Minds organization really going through his texts. And I don't like the idea of going through texts and changing things usually, but just to go over a few examples of what they have done so far, which is pissing people off. In the, in the story, The Witches, the grandmother used to say in quotes, and, and remember the witches are pretty much like going to try to wipe out humanity. Dark, cruel tale, to be completely honest. But anyways, one of the grandmother characters in the book used to tell someone in quotes, you can't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet, even if she's wearing gloves. Just you try it and see what happens. And in the 2022 edition, that has been changed to, the grandmother warns in quotes, there are plenty of other reasons why women wear might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. I mean, <laughs> I think first off, if you've read any doll books, or if you know anything about Roald Dahl, he would not have said that. There, he would not have said there are plenty of reasons why women wear wigs, and there's nothing wrong with that. Dahl's kind of a cruel guy, and his books were dark and cruel and brutal, and so... It seems like the voice is completely lost in this. And I think that gets to the heart of why people are angry about these edits is it's almost like vandalizing the meaning and voice of some of these cruel books, which are cruel, but not all books are meant to be hunky-dory happy, you know? Also, another example, instead of reading Joseph Conrad in Matilda, she's now reading Jane Austen. And a Financial Times article brings up a great point about this. The article writes in quotes here, for instance, Matilda becomes a different person when she reads not the exotic adventures of Joseph Conrad, but become, or sorry, but the domestic drama of Jane Austen. While there is no fundamental legal difference between these changes and more trivial ones, there is an aesthetic one. And I think it really does touch on something big there because look, I, th I think Matilda reading Joseph Conrad shows shows a lot about her, right? There's a kind of wild, adventurous treacherous spirit while Jane Austen is kind of about the domesticity and a lot more of like the role of a woman so it completely changes the text here and it is an aesthetic one as the Financial Times points out and I think this touches on the bigger issue here like look I think there are some definite ones that should have been changed in Roald Dahl's books like in the original Charlie and the Chop uh, Chocolate Factory the Oompa Loompas were apparently first African pygmies that were brought over and kind of forced to do this and in the 70s, they changed that, uh, and rightfully so. They changed it into these like little green people instead because from my understanding, and I never read the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory since they made this change, but apparently the original Oompa Loompas were practically slaves, and so they had to change that. Not good. Again, like I said, Roald Dahl has a lot of issues, no doubt. Those type of changes, I think, are one thing. 
Now, changing the book that Matilda's reading or a conversation that's completely different than the original is different than changing the color of the Oompa Loompas so it's not racist. And there's also other ones. There was, I forget where it was, but I, I remember reading that apparently in, in the original work, Roald Dahl talks about an earthworm's pink skin, and now, now the new edition talks about smooth skin instead. And the only thing you can assume with this is that the editors didn't want to racialize or, you know, add like skin color to the conversation about an earthworm, which is ridiculous. But I don't know. It seems, it just seems like aesthetically vandalizing the edits of the works. And Charlie Sykes in The Bulwark brings up a good point as well when he notes that while it's legal to do this to the books, it doesn't mean people should. Like I said, changing the Oompa Loompa thing makes sense. Changing the color of an earthworm or what Matilda's reading is completely different. And going back to that Financial Times article, it brings up a good point as well. It writes in quotes here, Aesthetically, the recent vandalizing edits to Dahl's work bear a very close resemblance to those Lucas has inflicted upon his own films. Talking about George Lucas. It continues, The changes are problematic because they change not only the texture of the original work, but its meaning. And I agree. I agree. And um, other than aesthetic vandalism, or maybe... I guess part of it as well. I think these sensitivity readers don't understand the cruelty of Roald Dahl's works. They don't understand that cruelty was a key to why there's such an appeal and fascination with his books and stories. I think the cruelty highlights, or sorry, yeah, the cruelty highlights some of the brutality that Dahl experienced as a boarding school kid in a bygone era. And it also brings up the nuance in life. And like, Again, this is a guy who is very problematic, but also we shouldn't just completely change his works. Like, there's a good Atlantic article, which I didn't agree with all of it, but the article basically says, like, maybe his work should just be gone. Like, like either send them to the wind or keep them, but don't try to rewrite them and then still call them the same piece of work. And I guess I would agree with that more or less. And I haven't done any studies on this, but I bet, I would bet, that the kids and adults alike that have read his works and still do are drawn to them because they're weird and cruel and dark, not because they're being rewritten by sensitivity readers, right? And going back to that uh, Atlantic article, it has a good point when it writes, Rolled Doll without nastiness is not Rolled Doll. Something about the process feels dishonest, like an Instagram filter that flattens and smooths, trending all faces towards one idolized yet utterly generic face. And I think that just touches in general what happens if we become so sensitive in society that we're doing this to things that offend us or are outdated or whatnot. I just think it's not good for our society. And I think sensitivity reading and this whole, again, another industry that's created around this has created a, a new class of censors, some sort of divine view about what should be said. And it shouldn't be in classic literature. I don't think it should be. I should also note that The Atlantic, which is no right-wing publication here, brings up another astute point. So Helen Lewis writes in quotes here, Given the zeal with which the American right is currently targeting books such as The Handmaid's Tale, the cultural left should be extremely cautious about championing the censorship of literature. And this is something I've talked about for a long time. You know, preserving speech and ideas, even if they are challenging or comfortable, is not about now or what or what the current moment deems is acceptable it's about the future and what others may view as controversial it's it's about protecting controversial speech for the future we don't protect controversial speech because of the stuff we can say we protect the things we shouldn't say because we must and 
that sounded like a Yoda thing there. So hopefully you get what I'm saying. But ultimately, I just think that the telling thing here is that no matter how many edits have been done to Dahl, kids are still drawn to him across generations, right? He's still popular despite being outdated and troubling, I guess, at times. And I think this just brings up an interesting paradox. And sometimes what irritates me about these companies is, is that they want the cake and they want to eat it too. Like they want to keep selling the book, but they also have to appeal to the modern craziness, I guess. And I have heard reports that Puffin is now stepping back a little bit and saying they're going to sell the updated books and the original ones. And hey, that's kind of good. That's kind of a capitalist answer to it. But I'll, I'll end this segment with the quote from The Atlantic, because I think it does sum this up well. It says, today's corporations want to have it all. They want the selling power of an author like Roald Dahl, shorn of the discomforting qualities that make him a bestseller. They want things to be simple, a quality that we might call childlike, if Dahl hasn't shown us that children can be so much more. I think it's all true. I think it's all true. And again, there's reports they're going to be doing the same thing with Ian Fleming's Bond books. Of course, you know, it's clear his books are absolutely outdated in the sexism and racism. I think we have to find ways to make that clear, I guess, without getting rid of the aesthetic, again, that made Bond so popular. And it's tough, but I always think about the TMC movies. You know, they play something from the 30s or 40s, and they have a guy explain to you before you watch it why this might be deemed offensive or why it's outdated or why things have changed. Like, can't we just do that and let people choose for themselves if they want to read and see it or not? That's what I think. Uh, let me know. I'm on Twitter if you think I'm wrong, but that's that's my definite opinion on that. <laughs> Moving on to another interesting side of this culture issue. Uh, while I think we must try and preserve what Dahl has said, there is someone that I have no problem with being canceled, to be honest. And this is Scott Adams. He's a cartoonist who did the comic strip Dilbert. And I guess that's been going on for a while. I'm actually not too versed in Dilbert. I, I know of Dilbert, but it's not something I'm just constantly reading. But NPR, like, basically, okay, Scott Scott Adams is uh, kind of done. <laughs> and it sounds like it's been a long time coming. And he seems like a, a jerk, so I, I'm okay with it. Um, NPR writes here in quotes, Cartoonists across the country are applauding editors and publishers for condemning Scott Adams, the creator of the comic strip Dilbert after his recent tirade against black Americans. And the article continues writing in quotes, hundreds of newspapers, including the Washington Post and the LA Times, announced they will no longer carry Adams' work. On Monday, Adams' distributor, Andrews McVeal, Universal, said they are severing ties with him because the company does not support any commentary rooted in discrimination or hate. And yeah, this one's pretty bad. Like, when you're talking about Roald Dahl, this is, you know, these are works that are like 70, 80 years old at this point. Uh, Scott Adams went on a really nice, disturbing tirade. I guess last week it was, maybe, I want to say. And he referenced this Rasmussen poll, sorry, Rasmussen poll, that found only a slim majority of black Americans agree with the statement, it's okay to be white. And I guess he, by the way, Rasmussen is not a good polling apparatus. I, but but he, I guess he took this very seriously. And then he went on a long diatribe video where he accused black America, uh, yeah, he accused black Americans of being a hate group and told white people in quotes to get the hell away from them. So yeah, that was not, not great. He, he looked at a poll, said black Americans don't think it's okay to be white. So we should just avoid black people, I guess was kind of his rant. 
And apparently this is really nothing new, according to reports I've read. Going back to that NPR article, it says, cartoonists say Adams has a long history of spewing problematic views. Apparently he's claimed that he lost multiple jobs for being white, which is kind of surprising because he's really famous and has done very well. So I don't know if that one really checks out if you think too much about it. He's also questioned the accuracy of the Holocaust, uh, the death toll of the Holocaust. Uh, so always a nice, nice thing there. And he's inaccurately described people who are not vaccinated as the real winners of the COVID pandemic. And look, this is, this is a guy who's just unhinged and insane. Like I watched the video where he advises white people to get the hell away from the black community. And he also says that he self-identified as black and now doesn't, which is just insane and makes kind of like how DeSantis, I mean, DeSantis, George Santos makes a mockery of being Jewish. This guy's also just making a mockery about a marginalized race in American history as well. So very troubling. And ultimately, I think these views are just actually dangerous and just blatantly racist. And they will only make issues involving race in the United States worse. Um, He's basically, basically by doing this, by telling white people to avoid black people, he's kind of calling for segregation, racial isolationism. And that would actually just make matters worse. That would probably just exasperate uh, race affairs. And I think this guy is... It's fine that this guy's going. It's fine for news outlets to no longer put out his cartoon. I mean, this is a guy in 2022 who is calling for this. Like, clearly he's gone down some insane rabbit hole. Maybe he's always had these views. I don't know. But, yeah, like, these these outlets like the Washington Post, the LA Times, they're not required to have his comics. So, yeah, adios. Adios, Adams. Uh, looks like your time is done. And I don't think anyone's crying about it. Now, of course, Elon Musk has said he shouldn't be canceled. Elon Musk, every time Elon Musk tweets or says something now, it's always contrarian, even if it shouldn't be. Like, I guess that's the problem with a pure contrarian or just someone who likes to ruffle feathers is that sometimes they're on the really bad side of issues. And Elon Musk was on this one. But so, of course, I guess when I say most people are happy about this, you do have the Elon Musks who are surprisingly defending this guy who I think it's indefensible what he said. So it's a tough one. But this guy did exercise his free speech. And private companies have reacted by exercising their freedom to not put him on their platforms anymore. So, yeah. Finally, before we're out of here, I want to talk about Fox News and our uh, our old buddy, Paul Ryan, who I do like in some ways, but I do find him to be kind of a coward as well. I mean, this is a guy who in, what, 2016 or 2015 leading up to 2016 called Trump racist and then you know, ended up saying we have to back him and tried to do his best. Like, obviously he didn't last very long. I think it was probably good he stepped away. He he did have some very milquetoast criticisms of Trump, but then of course he joins the board of Fox and has kind of set back and been quiet during all this chaos. And I guess I'll start with the good of Paul Ryan because I'm feeling generous. <laughs> and I guess I would say he's a late bloomer. But it looks like he's kind of the never-again Trumpers, right? Like, he's finally distancing himself from Trump. The Hills reported, in quotes, in an interview with WISN-TV, Ryan said that he would only attend the RNC, which which will be held in Milwaukee, if someone other than Trump was elected. Now, of course, and I've talked about this before with some of the other people that are condemning Trump. They're not condemning him because of morals. They're condemning him because they think he won't win. And Paul Ryan's kind of fallen for that trap as well. He said, I can't support Trump. He He's going to make us lose, blah, blah, blah. And 
I guess the problem is, is that the problem with that logic is that say Trump starts winning again, it creates a permission structure for people like Paul Ryan to then go back to him. It's same with the Bill Bars and the, you know, the Larry Hogan's and all these type of people. When they say, well, someone else will be the nominee because Trump can't win, what happens when Trump starts winning again? And I do genuinely think that Paul Ryan does not like Trump, but it's just the wrong reason to be against him. And also, you know, he's been on the Fox board. And Fox, as we have seen time and time again, has just become a propaganda network that just controls the GOP's narrative and has kind of created a system of fear where they don't want to speak up, right? They go after you if you do. And that's where it gets us <laughs> that's where it gets us to some new revelations and so Dominion I'm, I'm reading from the Bulwark's uh, Charlie Sykes newsletter but this is from a Dominion filing right we've talked about all the other conspiracy or not conspiracies controversies and anyways what's happened now is that Rupert Murdoch chairman of Fox News has acknowledged that several of his hosts promoted the false narrative and apparently he has acknowledged that he wishes he had done more to basically stop the big lie. He knew it was wrong. He thought they could move forward. Obviously that didn't happen. And the interesting thing too, going back to the Paul Ryan thing, and I'll read this, is that Dominion's latest filing in quotes also described how Paul Ryan, a former Republican Speaker of the House, said in his disposition that he had told Murdoch and Mr. Murdoch's son, Lachlan, the chief executive officer, sorry, that Fox News should not be spreading conspiracy theories. Mr. Ryan suggested that the network pivot and move on from Donald Trump and stop spouting election lies. And Charlie Sykes in this newsletter also talks about how Ryan believed that, you know, the period following the 2020 election was an important inflection point for Fox and for the country. And he felt that, Rupert Murdoch and others at the company needed to play a bigger role in pushing back on these conspiracy theories. I guess this kind of makes Paul Ryan look okay because the court filings show that he was playing an active role behind the scenes, right? Urging the Murdochs to push back, right? And this is again one of those things, you know, it's actually kind of similar to what happened in the Trump administration to a sense where... You have like those people that said, oh, we had to be in the Trump administration because someone else would be worse. And, you know, they stay and then eventually they resign and then they're silent. And, OK, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad that like Mark Esper, for example, was in there instead of Cash Patel, for example. I'm glad. But at the same time, it's like, OK, you leave, write a book, but you never actually did anything to really fight back against it. And in this case, it seems the same as like, that's good that Paul Ryan was pushing back against the Murdochs, against the election lies against all the money-making propaganda. But again, I don't think he really... He, he could have done more to make the public aware of what was happening and to really have a role in getting that information out there. Because we still have to remember that it looks like he, he didn't really do too much. Like, even if he was trying to push back, like, Fox News did what it did, <laughs> right? Like, it's not like his role really changed anything. So, look, I mean, Paul Ryan is not the worst guy on the planet. I think he's smart. And I do think that if he was president over, like, Donald Trump again, we'd be in a better place, much like Mitt Romney, right? But obviously, he didn't. what he was doing was not enough, I guess is what I would say here. And the Fox News saga just continues. Uh, I'm just kind of curious what the outcome of this is. Do they lose a bunch of money in this Dominion lawsuit? Do they get out? <laughs> I don't really know, but 
I'm just curious to see, does Paul Ryan stick around? What does Tucker Carlson have to say? Obviously, the network is not talking about this, which I'm assuming the lawyers have told them not to do. But there's a lot of chaos on the Fox News side, and it's something that I definitely have my popcorn out, and I'm watching. Not because I just want to see the company go down, but I think democracy and the United States would be better if Fox News is held accountable. And I really would like to hear Ryan come out and just talk more about his experiences there. But who will know? Anyways, uh, that's it for today. Still watching it snow outside. It's cold and dreary. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and we'll see you in March. Take care.